0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Matt. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. All right. So welcome back to the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by some of Sydney and Melbourne's leading thought leaders to discuss the topic of creating high-performance teams within both the city and Melbourne engineering industry. Before we jump into the questions, it'd be great to meet our panellists. I'll start with Andy. Can you please introduce yourself and kick things off?
1: Absolutely. Hi there. I'm Andy Kelk. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Marketplacer. So Marketplacer is a software business based out of Melbourne Uh, and now operating globally. uh, and What we do is we help retailers who want to leverage a marketplace strategy to grow their business, Um, so bringing on board third-party sellers, third-party products, that kind of thing. Uh, I've been at Marketplacer for about five years now, and uh, my background covers software development, leading teams, um, product management, uh, a whole bunch of different things. And I I really enjoy working with teams to uh, see them perform and deliver really exciting products.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that, Andy. And Raj, I'll move on to you next. Can you please introduce yourself?
2: Uh, hi, everyone. I, I, I don't know about Thought Leader, but uh, I'll take it. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, yeah, so my name's Raj Di I'm the CTO at News Perform, which is uh, a company name that's likely to mean not a lot to uh, to many people, but uh, it's come about through, I guess, an amalgamation or acquisition of a few different businesses that do similar things, and that's primarily functioning in the um, sports space around uh, statistics and analysis, uh, as and the presentation of that data for our customers to uh, make confident choices in in uh, whatever they want to do whether they want to bet on a sport, whether they want to look into you know how a team's performing and, and how that evaluates. And it all started with uh, a, a horse racing forum many many years ago from its founder and turned into a, a multi million dollar business that's been um, joined with other um, similar uh, businesses that do the same in horse racing and sport and, and we do that here and around the world um my background is heavy development i've come through the engineering uh ranks and and have done so for many many years uh, and the cto's cap is a new one to me for pretty much for the last two years now um, and i've spent four years at the current business so
0: yeah that's where i've come from awesome. Great. Thanks for that, Raj. And John, do you want to go next?
3: Yeah. Um, nice to meet you. I'm John. I'm head of technology from Domain Group, um, specifically within Domain um, Business Unit called Asian Solutions. Um, it's a collection of software service products for real estate agencies. Um, so we have five different solutions that we, we provide to um, all the real estate agents in Australia. Um I recently joined the about seven months ago, not not maybe six months ago. Um lost counting there. Um before that I moved across you know different functions within IT, development, operations, BA, architect, um, leading teams and etc. So it's been it's, it's been super fun and I'm super keen to um, bring business value and, and be the big companion to the business to you know unlock the future future values for yeah. That's what I'm passionate about.
0: Thanks for that. And last but not least, Elliot, can you please introduce yourself? Sure, I'm
4: trying to mute all my notifications.
0: Um, yeah, my name's Elliot. Um, I'm, uh,
4: I am I, I head uh, up um, uh, product and uh, technology, um, which we kind of call transformation um, collectively uh, at Jimmy Brings uh, in Sydney. Um, uh, we're we're now part of uh, Endeavour Group, um, you know, formerly part of Woolworths, but uh, recently divested. Um, and uh, my, my background historically was mostly telco. Um, I kind of come more from a product development um, and kind of you know BA type background um, initially. Um, and I I guess I've always worked, I've always been technology adjacent and working very closely with you know with development um, resources. But I am not a developer, um, and uh, yeah. So so Jimmy Rings is um, yeah is, is the leading um, on-demand liquor delivery business in Australia. Um, has experienced very significant growth, particularly you know in the last eighteen months for, for obvious reasons. Um, and so yeah, our challenge has been to both uh, you know mature mature the business and handle the growth. Uh, and try and kind of you know move forward and um, you know ca- we're kind of catching up to the present and trying to move boldly into the future at the same time switch out the engine yeah while the car's running all of, all of that stuff. so it's been a very exciting time um, and uh, I'm trying to you know make the impression that I know what I'm doing
0: yeah so. <laughs> perfect. thanks for that introduction Elliot. Well, let's drive straight into our first question uh, which was brought forward by Andy, which is, uh, how do you know what? Uh, how do you know that a team is high performing? And also, what do you measure, or are there other ways to spot it? If you want to elaborate on that a little bit, and maybe give some context to that, Andy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the age-old questions in software development: is is measuring uh, progress, measuring health, measuring output, measuring performance. You know, I think we talk about High performance teams, and sometimes instinctively we we know what they are and we can we can spot them. Um, but I think it's really interesting to to dig into what actually makes a high performing team by definition. Um, so my one of my first um, gigs doing team leadership, I remember distinctly sitting um, in an office with the team and seeing the team just click. You could see that they were working on problems, they were gathering wa- around whiteboards, they were doing problem solving, they were all in there, they were engaged in the problem, and and the the work that they were doing was, was really good. And particularly the last 18 months, as a lot of people have started to work from home, it's been harder to get that energy sometimes or the sense that a team is really performing uh, you know i think if you're in the same room you can kind of spot some of the factors um, so how do you get a more scientific approach to that i guess um, and and that's really um for me what i think is is one of those things that i'm i'm really keen to hear how other people have done that i i, I can tell you a bit about what i think um, i mean for me one of the things that the biggest one is just they actually measure things themselves and they know what they're measuring and they know what they're measuring themselves against. Um, I think quite often I see teams who don't have goals or who don't know what their goals are or maybe there's not alignment on their goals between the team themselves or external to the team Uh, or or that their their goals are very um, output driven rather than outcome driven so there, you know how many points did i ship or how many tickets do i did i solve run thinking about you know what did i actually achieve for the organization and how does that roll up to bigger goals that the that the company has um, so yeah i think that's 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 kind of one thing is actually just having goals is is probably a, is was one way that you might be able to spot that um, and then maybe another one um is Thinking about maybe some of the team health indicators, um, I think Atlassian have a pretty good one. They, they, they have they've published their methodology for uh, measuring team success and measuring team health, uh, where teams kind of self evaluate against that. Um, and I've I, I think those kind of things can be useful. But I'm curious to know from 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 other people what what they've done in this space to to measure and monitor whether a team is high performing. <coughs>
0: Yeah, awesome. awesome. Look, well, I might pass it to you next, Raj, and, and get your thoughts on the question.
2: Yeah, wow, um, that's a big one. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, there's all there's always the you know the wonderful metrics that Jira can spit out on velocity and and all of those things that speak to you know how quickly we're churning through cards and if we're if if it's high performing with air quotes in terms of the productivity of the team. Um, but that really doesn't tell you the underlying sort of tone within the group and if they are working together well or not. It's just work is shifting, right? So um, it's interesting because I I actually was watching a video sort of along Google's great experiment of what makes a high-functioning team in their eyes and and it had nothing to do with sort of um, diversity or whether they were friends or whether they hung out outside of work, which doesn't really, you know, the last two years have sort of thrown all of that out of the window. It was all about, you know, do they have an equal distribution of voice within the team? Uh, are they um, giving each other the, the the room so it's not being, you know, dictated to them, but a conversation is happening and everyone's respected within that team um, to, to have that, which, again, is very difficult in a virtual setting because a lot of people just like to sit and be quiet that they're not sort of you a group of 15 people on a zoom call and um it's it's quite hard to extract that conversation piece which you used to have in the office really like all the time um so i would i sort of look through, look at it in a different way in that um there's still a fun element when i see my team interacting and and we measure engagement and all of those wonderful things with peak on surveys or culture amp or whatever you want but when i'm observing them in say for example a retro that i might pop into at a a team level um, how they have that conversation especially if if i'm not a part of that conversation i'm sort of an observer but how they're feeding into that water is everyone getting the chance to speak are they feeling like their voice is being heard within that uh format and the fun that they're having on the side. And depending on what tools people are using, like we do our um, retros using Miro, which is a whiteboarding tool, the team will often sort of start painting pictures and making sort of fun of the exercise, um, rather than just kind of uh, going through the motion of a retro. And that to me is, is an indicator that we're doing the right thing. You know, they're enjoying the, the, the time and uh, working together. They're getting any of that frustration out of what they may have gone through on the previous sprint. And, um, and the, they feel like their voices are really being heard and, and they're receptive of one another's emotional state. And uh, I'm using a lot of sort of big corporate words <laughs> to, to, you know, psychological safety and all of that stuff. But it's actually, it's true, right? Like it, if they feel open enough with one another to trust one another to have those conversations and and be that vulnerable in that setting Um, whether it's you know openly saying it in a slack channel or just having a bit of fun on the side like i trust that they're doing that and they're enjoying and they're not leaving that (laughs) staff retention is one of the biggest indicators i think in 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 this whole remote living world right now because we all know how hard it is to recruit at the moment so um that's probably, I would say, my biggest leading indicator that I've got a team that are sticking around and and are happy having a little bit of fun whilst we're going through the process.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Saraj. John, can to hear, hear your opinion next.
3: I'm not sure whether I can add anything more to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I recently, um, uh, I guess, took approach to maybe have a little bit more scientific measurement to how we perform. Um, so the the famous four key metrics uh, we're starting to measure. One of the values in domain is lip grow, repeat. And without knowing where we are and reliable way to compare ourselves to previous version of ours, um, I think, you know, um, I think four four metrics is going to give us a good indicator to understand whether that is working or something is not working quite right for us to to give an opportunity to really delve deep into the situation and find out what are the things that we can improve next time Um, culture is obviously a big piece um, because you know measuring is somehow very scary to 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 the teams because they, they might think the measurement will be used against them so Um, One of my key takeaway from this exercise was that um, calling out that, look, we are measuring because we need to understand where we are. It will be working for us, not against us, and it will never be used to penalize anyone. So I think building that trust and fail-safe environment and then measuring these outputs or outcomes um, quite reliable and scientific way, um, I'm hoping that our team will go into the next leap. and also, you know, this year um, I have asked the team to think about four different categories that we need, We want to be better at. One is, you know, software development cycle, how we code, ship and, you know, deploy and all that. And the second one is the culture piece. And third one is our understanding of, of the customer and business. And how are we actually being the equal voice on the table that works with product not for the product. Um, And then fourthly, uh, business continuity and operations. So, you know, when when we debated around these categories and how to become better and what to measure, we sort of like came to a conclusion that these four metrics actually worked for us. So that's how we measure. Thanks a lot for
0: that, John And and Elliot, what what are your thoughts?
4: Sure, Um, I guess, I guess one thing I have to admit is that whenever I read the term "high-performing team" in someone's LinkedIn profile or in a job description, I probably mentally make a rude hand gesture. Um, and <laughs> I think I think it's kind of become almost like a meme. But it's it's not, it's not, it's like this this thing that people talk about constantly, but like never, no like they don't really think about what it means. Um, and I guess for me. I guess the other thing for context is that, you know, I I came into my business as the only person doing product or or tech governance. Um, uh, And I've kind of built out a a team with the help of some really good people. So like we're we're not at a stage where we're thinking about, you know, applying lots of kind of, you know, very fine metrics to things. Um, For me, it, it really comes down to like, what value are we adding to the business? And I guess the mantra that I repeat more often than anything is um, at the end of three months, like, what, have we, what value have we actually created? What are we delivering to the business? Um, you know, it's, it's pretty meat and potatoes. And you know, I guess for, for a business of our size, that, that kind of works pretty well. And, and it also works well when people get disheartened and, and they feel frustrated. You know, we're going through a very challenging time at the moment because we're trying, trying to transform so much um, all at the same time. That we we're not settled into a very nice cadence of product development and you know and software development where we we can take a breath and do small chunks of, of, of very satisfying work. We're, mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of you know difficult stuff all at once, as well as trying to meet you know other external regulatory obligations and stuff that are being imposed on us. So um, I often have to reassure people and just say, look, three months ago or however long ago, we didn't have this, and you know this week we we did this, this, and this. Good job guys like don't you know don't be too hard on yourselves you know like you know um so i guess i guess yeah and that being having i guess identifying self-identifying more as a product person and more as a commercial person than a technology person i guess i always bring it back to that so like what are we actually delivering into the business it's, it's really about it's really about that value add um, and at the same time, I, I've, I've been very blessed to have, you know, some, some very good, you know, particularly one particularly fantastic, you know, manager who's completely uplifted our practice in terms of agile. And actually, you know, we are measuring, you know, the velocity of the sprints and, you know, and, and, and some key metrics, but I'm terrible at that stuff. I'm, you know, so um, I, 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 I can't take any credit for, for that kind of uplift, um, you know, in our business. Uh, but I'm, I've been very lucky to have, yeah. know a great team you know so and again i think going back to the other it's like yes they've just got to be happy you know like you know like the lack of friction you know you know you can see it you know when we brought our team together in person for the first time in a long time the other day it's you know you could see that people were you know like really engaging positively and i don't think it's that difficult to identify whether that's happening or not but again we're, we're quite small yeah i'm not i'm not i don't have um
0: you know, 20 squads, yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, thanks everyone uh, for your contribution. So shifting gears a little and moving towards our next question surrounding engineers buy-in within the company, which is put forward by Raj. The question is, a company's vision is such an important element of culture and engagement. How do you go about embedding and growing your engineers buy-in of the company's direction remotely? So I'll get you to start, Raj, and, and potentially give some context and look to answer as well
2: yeah for sure um so i think a a a lot of what um where this has come about is because we're sort of going through a bit of a transitional phase as every business does over you know its lifetime uh and and a part of that has been redeveloping uh, or continuously redeveloping our uh, strategic purpose our vision um, and what that looks like and we we revisit that as a business every uh, we check in on it every three months and we may change it every six months just depending on the headwinds and, and where the business is at that particular point in time. And now uh, where we are at the moment, our, our CEO has actually moved up the chain as a part of, uh, uh, moved off into a different group um, and we're in the process of replacing that person. I personally have found myself now at the face of this strategy and vision that we're rolling out to the to the business Um, so i'm often in the sort of all meeting or sorry all hands town hall style um presentations where it's like this is what we want to do this is how we we think we're going to get there um, so it's not just engineers that I'm appealing to, but the wider group, product teams, uh, content staff, marketing staff, sales groups, and so forth. So it's it's been quite an interesting personal challenge for me to take it up that extra level as well. But at the same time, uh, I think, uh, Andy, you mentioned sort of like objectives and, and OKRs, uh, the common or the, the hot topic and so forth around the traps at the moment. And we do have sort of frameworks that incorporate those. But I find that remotely, again, in those big sort of town hall settings, and even on smaller scale, getting people to buy in or truly be on board for the for the strategic rollout can be an extremely difficult challenge. Um, and I'm just wondering if anyone's come across uh, the challenge themselves and how how they've seen it land. And, um, to be perfectly honest for for myself and in, in the way I presented it or the way I've gone about it is really by doing everything I haven't liked my predecessors or um, people who I've worked for in the past, how they've done it. So I've just been trying to do the opposite sort of thing, type of thing as we roll it
0: out. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. I'll pass it on to Andy and get your thoughts next.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, um, and as you say, particularly in the, it, with when everyone is remote. Um, you know, for, for us, with um, within technology and product and technology, where I work, we've gone from pre-COVID. I think everybody was in Melbourne. Uh, And then we were actually just around the same time as COVID hit, we were just hiring some people in in our group to work in Sydney, Uh, and and the plan was the first of those people was going to come down to Melbourne and meet the team, and uh, I think he only just got down to Melbourne about a few weeks ago. Um, so it's been it's been a bit chaotic, but during that time we did we did hire people in Sydney and Melbourne and uh, Tasmania. We've got people in New Zealand, we've got people in the US. So uh, you know even with people heading back into the offices, you know ultimately we're all in different places now. So we do have to deal with these things not being in the same room. And I think the thing I've learned over the years is I and probably most people under communicate. And I don't say things often enough, because when you're saying things and you're communicating something, and you put together a strategy piece or or a, a vision or a roadmap or whatever it might be, or some some principles, and you you go and you do a big town hall and you say to everyone, "This is this is what we're doing," and you know everybody nods and and looks very pleased about it, and um, and then you go off and you 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 think you've done your job, but you know, half those people didn't hear half the words. Um, Those who did hear them probably forgot most of them. Some of the people weren't even there in the first place. Um, And so it it feels uncomfortable, but you have to say it just so many times and just repeat yourself. And if you feel like you've repeated yourself too much, you've probably just about said enough, but you probably still need to say it a few more times. Um, and, And I think that's the thing that I've to be frank, I think I still struggle with, I still find it uncomfortable. I, I I feel like, you know, I shouldn't have to say these things multiple times, but experience has taught me that sometimes you do. Um, and I think that the, the, a few nuances around that, different ceremonies and different levels of saying it as well so saying it in a town hall to 100 plus people is very different from then bringing that into a leadership group or those leadership groups taking it into their teams or doing skip meetings with uh you know the the next level down and and re-emphasizing it with them and having different environments for for uh, communicating it because you will get different feedback and sometimes that will give you uh, hints on how to um reframe your message as well Um, And then I think, yeah, with with remote, it's then probably even more important to be really deliberate about it because you're not having those conversations day to day, just, um, you know, in passing with people about it, you're you're having to really schedule the time and think about how you present it more. Um, But yeah, I think ultimately the strategy... um, so if I look at my my world, looking after product and technology, you know we're we're a technology business. We sell a technology product. So the product strategy is a strategy is a big part of the business strategy, but it's not the business strategy. And I think that's the other distinction that we've had to be really careful of is actually there's a there's an organisational wide strategy uh, which we as an executive team will will get together and, and agree on, uh, but then that colours what the product strategy strategy is and and trying to do those in in isolation of each other can be really jarring as well when you're trying to communicate that
3: message to people
0: awesome appreciate that andy and uh, john i'll move on to you next get your thoughts
3: um i personally found um over communicating why we're making these changes or what directions are being made um and more often than not, involving key thought leaders in that process, even if it feels like you know death by post-it, um, you know, going through that, um, I guess, you know, initiation and you know, brainstorming and coming up with the idea together, because um, people who um, really buy into that idea and they, you know. If, if they feel like they came up with the idea as an originator, I think that's the when the big power movement shifts and then um, momentum really can build um, pe- with people around them as well. So I, I normally find a few key people and trying to really workshop with them and come up with the idea. I already have some ideas what I want to do, but you know at the same time, I could be also wrong like when we when you go into workshop like there could be multiple other you know um, ideas and scenarios that you never thought of and um i I think having that exercise even as a small group and then propagating it through to the organization uh worked like a treat Um, and other than that you know you just need to be consistent and very diligent around the new principles or strategies that you created or we created as a group um, and then try to find some examples or, you know, initiate, initiatives that is directly talk to that strategy and then really nurture that and, and see it through and then just try to repeat that with different group of people. And then that sort of like becomes another momentum within the organization I found.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that answer, John. And Elliot, what are your thoughts? Anything to add there specifically?
3: Sure. I mean, I guess
4: I was just thinking about, you know, like when am I most, you know, effusive about the vision or, or about, you know, like a an engineer's role in, you know, you know, in, in that. And it it always hit. I think the time that I'm I'm most enthusiastic about is when I'm actually hiring them. Um, and and I think that's something that's been critical for us to say. Well, you know, this is you're not going to be a tiny cog in a massive machine. Like you can actually achieve stuff here. You know, you're not gonna you can feel like you're making a difference. And then you know we have again because of the size of our business, we're able to have effectively like an all hands meeting every morning. You know, we have we haven't had since um, since since the pandemic started. Um, so everyone really gets to see what's happening in the business and across all areas of the business and and get kind of briefings you know that they're, they're across you know performance in terms of you know what like financial performance each week. you know they're across operational issues, you know they're across what marketing activities we're doing um, and why. And I think that's a that's a great thing and it's something you know that we we may even preserve once we you know fully once we're back into you know a kind of I guess a state of of normalcy um yeah i guess i was also thinking of yeah that i remember um yeah at a um you know we had a, a trimesterly planning kind of uh, like you know strategy session and I, I i did a mission statement and i kind of got slightly laughed at by the uh yeah one of the co-founders of the business but um you know i think that's important and it's important for it to be like real you know and it's like this is what we actually and you know in a way, it's not just the engineers. It's telling, you know, operational people like, what can we do for you, and how can you learn how to ask us for it? You know, um, you know, like we want, we don't want you to accept what you've been doing, the way things are that have been for, you know, for that's almost more important, I think, or has been the, the the tougher sell for me. It's like telling the business that they can ask for more and for better, um, and that it's not, it's okay to do that, and it's it's okay to not just cope with you know, with, with kind of misery uh, or, you
0: know, whether that's on a small or a large scale, um, but yeah, um. yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Ellie. Great answers, everyone. And uh, I think this ties in well with our next question, uh, which was put forward by John, which is, have you ever felt that you as the senior leader were the blocker in in building a high performance team? And what did you do? Or what's your learning experience from that situation? I'll get you this kind of segue, that John, and kick things off.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, as as your team grows and you know you got multiple squads to manage, and you know you're trying to, everything that you can to build a high performing team. I've, I've I've seen a number of times where senior leaders, including myself, were becoming a blocker. In creating those high-performing teams, and you know, one for me has been, um, you know, trying to understand what are the details that is going through to make some technical decisions, and and trying to be, trying to be across them as much as I can, and you know, that sort of created, uh, I guess, a bottleneck in terms of creating the right solution for different groups of people that we had. Um, so having the architect and big bit of technological technology background, I normally find that really interesting and fascinating to, um, you know, go through that, you know, exercise of understanding the problem space and solving the problem. But you can't solve the problem all by yourself either. So that was one of the early learnings that I got maybe five, six years ago. And then, um, you know, that has been one of my mottos that, you just can't do everything by yourself, and you're building a team for a reason. And you want to hire um, who is actually better than you in those areas that you need um, help with. So yeah, I've been very lucky to have really good people in the main, and you know, everywhere. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to hear what other other leaders' problems or challenges were.
0: Yeah, thanks, that, John. I'll, I'll get Andy. I'll get you to start things off. Give us your thoughts. <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, I, I, I think coming from a developer background um, and, and working in software development teams, the temptation is always, yeah, to get on the tools and, uh, you know, this is fun. I could spend an afternoon doing stuff. Um, and, and for me, when I when I started at Marketplacer, it was, I think, 12 people in technology, um, pretty much all engineering. And... I'd come from businesses before that last two roles, which had been, you know, 100 plus people, and I hadn't seen a line of code, let alone written any. And so with a much smaller team and a, a, and a, a code base that I could get my hands on, I was all of a sudden really excited to, uh, you know, to, to, to put my skills to use. Um, but what I had to be really conscious of was, first of all, that's not necessarily the best use of my time. Uh, there's, there's probably other ways I can be more effective. Uh, by helping um, you know the the people in the team uh, be be more effective and and help them perform uh, but also that I just couldn't put myself on a critical path for something I couldn't be the one that everybody's waiting for to do something um, and the other thing I had to be really careful of was that I didn't become the type of CTO who, maybe sits up all night codes the amazing thing and then hands it over to the team and goes, well, here you go. I've done it for you. Good luck. Go put it into production. And, you know, they're, they're silently cursing you because you've, you've put together a, a whole heap of uh, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think, have I been in that situation? I've, I've consciously tried not to, but I'm sure I have. I've definitely been in organizations. I think, uh, as you said, John, where um, I've, felt like i'm the only person who can make the technical decisions and so i have made the technical decisions and then the team sees that you make all the technical decisions and so doesn't make any more technical decisions and so it just becomes a downward spiral and becomes you becoming the bottleneck uh, but i've also rescued organizations from that so i've been in a in a situation where a key person who was in that role and everybody turned to them for the you know the answer they left the business uh, through their own choice uh, and that what I did was I deliberately didn't put somebody in that role to fill it. I said, look, leave a vacuum and you know, get, get the teams to step up and then give people the space and, and the safety and the encouragement to try and step into that gap. Um, and, and I found that to be quite effective to actually uh, help the teams perform at a, at a higher level.
0: Awesome. thanks that, Andy. And, and on to next, Raj. What, what are your thoughts? Uh,
2: I one hundred percent have been the blocker I, I've, without a doubt um, in in many instances. I think um, I essentially, you know in the same organization went from a, a lead engineer or as architect or whatever you want to call the role. Into being head of technology and CTO effectively, um, and had a level of knowledge across the many. Like we've got five brands, we we operate across you know multiple cloud platforms and so forth. There just wasn't the knowledge to go around. That meant that onboarding engineers or architects didn't have that information. So you were a constant draw of like what how you know, what can you provide and and make decisions. Um, it was one hundred percent the the wrong thing for me to stay involved with for as long as what I had to, had to because of um, recruitment and so forth and all of those wonderful things. Um, and to be perfectly honest, the best thing that happened was COVID and remote working because I couldn't be a part of those conversations. I couldn't be uh, in the room to make those decisions for them for the people, and that was a great sort of. Um, launch pad for me to remove and actually be helpful on a much higher level to the team. Um, the other thing that it forced me to do was trust the people that I had hired to do the job a- and building that level of trust or or giving giving the keys. You know, I don't know, you've got a, a, a child that's just got the P plates and they're going out for the first time or something like that, like letting them go. To make those decisions was very difficult um, to do, um, because you kind of have this. I know, I know how it all fits, and maybe I should be in this conversation. But it, 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 it was the best thing I ever did was hand that over to them. Construct like a technical leadership group, have a forum for the senior people to have those debates about whether it's the right tool for the job or it isn't the right tool. If um, uh, put together sort of a dci or a racy matrix on what should i be involved in like where at what point do i need to make a decision or like um at what level can you guys just pick a framework and run with it um and giving them sort of a, a, a governance around how or what type of decisions i should be making and they should be making um So removing myself entirely from the architecture discussions, removing myself completely from um, this is a framework that we want to put in our technology roadmap um, and uh, letting them do what I'm paying them to do. Um, I actually went the complete other way and I take menial crap off of them. So for example, we handle desktop support and systems administration. So, you know, if I've got... If I'm in one of the many meetings that I sit in all day and I see that, you know, person X needs access to Y because it's sitting in a queue, I'll just go through and flick them that access and process it or whatever, giving them the time to do the work that's far more valuable and meaningful for them. So I that's how I sort of tackle it now is like sort of ta- going, working from the other end of the situation um, and letting them just r- run with the decisions. Um, which is a difficult position that it's taken me many many months if not years to get um, comfortable with yeah
0: <laughs> thanks for that raj and elliot what are your thoughts yeah well i guess there are a few
4: previous yeah points that resonated it's funny i didn't even think about the manual stuff but it actually is a big part of my life now yeah tr- actually just taking yeah because we don't we don't really have Uh, you know, within our team, anyone, there's no one whose role is, you know, like infrastructure or or, or admin. Uh, And often there's just a a large percentage of time that's like, you know, dealing with accounts and paying, making sure the bills are paid and yeah, giving permissions to, granting permissions, And yeah, it's a bit, it seems ridiculous, but at the same time, yes, you know, you kind of need to unblock that. I guess for me, you know, the yeah, the risk, the inherent risk, as someone who uh, used to be a BA and doesn't have a BA in their team, um, is that I will get, yeah, I, I will put myself on that critical path, or maybe try and, yeah, kind of get go into that detail mode. Um, and I think I've got better at just, you know, removing myself from it. But I guess there's, yeah, th- that process can be kind of fairly guilt ridden, I think, and especially, you know, in my situation. You know i came into like i said earlier like i came into this business where the, the function the product and tech function barely existed so i was a one-man band and then we were a two-man band and you know and, and that that changed very rapidly you know uh, over the course of about two years so i went from still trying to manage offshore partners directly and deal with the you know the individual you know tickets and you know stories um and, and, the, and the solutioning to yeah having a team to do it and trying to Trying to be more strategic and just think about what's next so yeah it's it, it's still hard sometimes to manage that but i've got i've also got better just being philosophical and just accepting that you know things won't be perfect um we are going to make mistakes and you know we'll just we'll just deal with it you know um, and you know
0: you just can't control every aspect of it so yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, Elliot. And finally, our last question of the podcast, looking at a question surrounding soft skills within a working from home environment, which is put forward by Elliot, which is in the new working from home context, is there a greater need for developers to have a non-technical or soft skills to deliver effectively as a team? So I'll start with you, Elliot, and just get your thoughts.
4: Sure. Well, I guess the reason I asked the question is I probably believe that that is true. Um, I think, you know, thinking about you know, my you know career journey, um, you know, like there there have been a lot of you know there have always been a lot of developers who kind of, or, or a certain number of developers who are happy to sit in the corner um, and kind of just do their you know and just code um and you know often you know happy for someone else to be prescriptive about what they're doing you know and kind of set them work and i guess i feel like we've gotten into this situation where there's more of an onus on people to kind of speak up and 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 communicate clearly and communicate proactively and kind of um really be able to articulate what they're doing because you know they are the only they're not in the corner they're the only person in the room Um, and yeah it it kind of feels like it feels like the the role of software developer is an engineer is kind of becoming broader and it's not uh, you know it's not just the domain of you know I guess stereotypical geeks you know anymore um, you kind of need you need you need the full suite I think to to be a, to be a, a true high performer. and I'm just wondering what other people yeah what what do you guys think
0: about that statement Thanks, Andy. I'll, I'll pass it on to you next.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, it is it is an intriguing one. Um, I mean, I think yeah, non technical skills, soft skills, whatever you want to call them, they're I mean they're essential, whether you're remote or not. Um, but yes, I think the the remote working environment highlights it more. Um, you, you know, I think yes, it's it's a bit of a cliche that developers are all introverts and sit in the corner. And it's, uh, you know, there's a certain level of of truth, you know, the old joke of, how can you tell you're talking to an extrovert developer, they look at your shoes, while they're talking to you rather than their own. Um, But I think there's, there's things that that everybody has, when they're doing software development, which because it's fundamentally a human activity, right? You know you need empathy for the users you're building product for, you need empathy for the other people in your team, you need empathy for the other teams as well. So you do need that ability to, to communicate. Um and what I found really interesting has been that we even when we were in the office, a lot of the communication we were having was over Slack. Even when people were sitting right next to each other or or, or just around the corner from each other, they all had headphones on and they were all in Slack channels anyway. So actually moving to work from home didn't really change it day to day because people were still doing what they were doing before. What did happen though was that those incidentals and the just the some of the bonding things, you know, there's a certain half-life to your human relationships. You see somebody in person face-to-face and you build up a, you know, a, a store of, of value for that person in your brain and that that decays over time. And after a certain period of time, you need to kind of refresh that. Um, so when everybody's in the same office every day, that's it's easy in some ways. Physical closeness is, is kind of a shortcut to everybody being mentally close. Uh, but it doesn't mean you can't get it if everybody's working from home, you just have to try harder. Um, and, and so being deliberate about having social time, uh, even if it's you know we, we do a um, company company-wide quiz which we used to do in person um, on a Friday afternoon um, optional you know started off with a few people would get together and do the smH or the age quiz on a friday and do a few of those and it and and we we move that online and we get a, a core group who'll turn up to that on a friday afternoon um, and, and that's a that's a bit of fun there's a, a lot of the teams will do take deliberate time to have fun with each other as well Um, so all of those can help but ultimately I think you also need to get everybody face to face from time to time Um, and I think sometimes you actually need to get people out of their comfort zone and I'll say that as somebody who loves working from home don't really want to go back into the office would quite happily sit in this room for, for forever I know that I need to force myself to get out of my chair and actually go into the office from time to time because I I don't dread it but i don't look forward to it but when i actually get there i'm like okay yeah i'm enjoying this and there is value to it and i've done that enough times that i i get that and i think sometimes you just have to encourage people as well to say you know i know you you're quite happy and comfortable at home but come into the office even if it's once a quarter you know or once cup half a year every half year whatever it is and of course if people are scattered across the globe it gets harder and more expensive but think of all the money you're saving on office space And just think of the value of it, you know, if you can get everybody together a couple of times a year, it's gonna be really, really valuable.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that, Andy. And Raj, I'll pass it on to you next. Uh,
2: Yeah, I I don't know if I'm gonna buck the trend here, but I'm I'm gonna say that no. Um, the, The difference now, or having people remotely having an increase in soft skills from my own personal experience, I wanted those skills first, like when we were all in the office, not not just now that we're remote. Um, I, w- I was very fortunate to be a partner in a, an agency before my current role or current um, place of work. And uh, I can't take credit for this, but uh, our our motto or our mission statement was tech people you can talk to. and And that is something that I have basically carried through from every piece of work, every hire I've made, every person I introduced to the business, um, because you can teach someone how to code. that 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 is the easiest thing in the world to do. You can teach someone how to architect, you can teach someone how to upskill, you can teach someone the, the engineering side of the business. You can't teach someone how to interact as a human being. Um, you can't necessarily force someone to have those social sensitivity skills uh, and they can really rock the boat for in terms of a team dynamic level if they don't have them and whether that's remote or in person or one day a week or or, or not it, it really does make a significant difference and I, I know because of the recruitment challenges that COVID has brought about how difficult it is to be selective of the people that you want to introduce to your team. Um, Sometimes you just don't have a choice right now and you're you're pulling in whoever you can possibly get your hands on that isn't going to a big bank or something for, you know, lots of dollars. Um, uh, So I I have wrestled with that that line, you know, tech people that I can talk to, that you can talk to because... uh, I've, I've pulled the trigger on people that have not fit that ethos, and I've paid the price. Um, I, I have lost not just the person that I hired that didn't fit that, but I've lost the good people around them that truly made up the great people in, in a high-performing team, if we want to get back to that. So I'm I i I'm a very strong advocate that this rings true, remote or otherwise. Um, and. I I will use it as a guiding light when I go into that recruitment conversation and bringing people on board. Um, it it also feeds into the whole larger vision and and strategy sort of work as well. Um, I I want people that that are in it as a team, not as an individual or not not just sitting off in a corner and and
0: not getting involved. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks that, right, Elliot. Yeah, you wanted to jump in there and I yeah, so.
4: I, I just thought it was interesting because it almost brings us to the sorry before John you respond, but uh, <laughs> it just always brings us to the very well, I think it's kind of a dangerous you know topic of, of cultural fit. Um, and and I kind of have always thought, well, yeah, it, it, it's, it's got a fairly insidious, insidious connotation because it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, in our case, I'll oh, wear a hip young, you know, we just want you know, young you know, cool people in our business and we don't want, you know, anyone that doesn't fit that mold. And I don't really agree with that, but I think it sounds like, yeah, it's like how do we, you know, almost how do we get to that sweet spot and, and you know, like responsible place of, you know, getting cultural fit right. Um,
0: but, yeah, I think it's an ongoing challenge. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Raj? you just on mute there
2: i guess cultural fit is a bit of a dirty word and and it's not what uh what i mean by the the, the content it's more uh yeah. you want you know you, you bring those different voices and so forth but it's still there's a set of uh, i guess skills empathy social sensitivity general understanding of the human nature and the way they interact like it, it's not about is it the, you know, are they going to go out and get drunk on a Friday night together as a no, team? I, I
4: agree yeah, with
2: that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, you, you, you want those differing opinions and so forth, but they need to be able to communicate those opinions. They need to be able to, you know, have that equal tone of voice in, in the group and, and be a, a part of the conversation, which a lot of people can't do. So um, we can foster that. We can sort of try and grow that and, and help them. Um, it, but it only goes so far, and, and it's much easier to um, teach the hard skills or the, the the development skills than it is those. Um, the other thing, just quickly while I remember, is you can also end up having managers or needing more managers for those people that don't have the soft skills, because there's, there's a lot of, like, can lead to underlying problems or disruption in the team, and then all of a sudden you've got a lot of extra that you need to handle as well.
0: Thanks, Raj. And look, we'll go, go straight to John and get your, your thoughts as well on this.
3: I'm actually with Raj on this one. Um, I 100% agree that um, one, of the, one of the only criteria when I hire people and when, when I tell my people to hire, the only criteria that I have is don't hire brilliant drugs. Um because they can be the bad egg and bad apple and it will just spread like contagious. And I don't think, you know, it's, it's more of a, not a culture fit, but it's more of a value fit. You know, the domain group, for example, have four very specific values that we operate our businesses with. And those values are frequently used. Um, and it is part of how we work. And if the, you know, new hire is not going to be fit with those values, we quickly know that the person may not be able to perform to their maximum if they join the domain. So, you know, open mind, open doors, head adventures, live, grow, repeat, you know, um, and, oh, what's the first one? Passion is contagious. You know, those are the four values that we promote and that's how we work and we actively seek for those people who's, you know, looking for those values in their workplace. Um, and, and it, it, it is same for engineers. And the reason I think um, soft skills, whether that is more required because we are working remotely, I'm not sure, I, I'm a very introvert. I look at my own shoe, not the other person's shoe. Um, <laughs> so I'm really enjoying the remote work and, and I'm, it, it's, it's good to, you know, go to a meeting without walking and bumping into people. Sometimes you need your own space and you just can click the button and just join the meeting and get the actions out and just join the next meeting. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that I believe that stress or the need of proactive communication and reaching out is required everywhere within the business, not only engineering. Maybe it could be amplified because of the introvert nature of engineering people. Um, but having said that, I think that's something that we need to solve culturally and systematically, rather than I don't know whether we can grow the you know soft skills of our people because they need to, they are working remotely. Or rather, create different you know activities that we can do together, or you know maybe create huddle time, maybe um, one hour per week where you're not, you're actually working on a keyboard, but you're maybe talking to the other people um, as if they are next to you. So um, I think there there could be multiple things that we can try um, to relieve that stress. Awesome. Thanks that, John. Look, we're going, going uh,
0: fairly into the time here, so I think we'll leave it there for now. But I just want to thank Andy, Raj, John and Elliot for joining me on the podcast and providing such interesting insights which surround such a relevant topic for today's senior managers on building high performance teams. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time on the next instalment of the Evolution Exchange.